If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. If you're using uh, the Pew Bible from the Pew Racks in front of you, that's on page 948. We're now well into the second half of the book of Romans, which began in chapter 12. How do we live based on the truths of the gospel of chapters 1 through 11? The first section of, of chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, concerned how we relate to one another. And Pastor Ben uh, last time showed us how when we get to uh, verse 14, of chapter 12 are entering sort of a new section, which is how we as Christians relate to those outside the church. So we are now looking at uh, a different section, and that section now is, well, as we consider how we relate to those outside the church, the question then uh, naturally arises, how do we relate as Christians to our civil authorities in the government? So with that, give your attention to the reading of the Word of God from Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we do humbly come before you uh, this evening asking that by your spirit you would illumine your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, and that you would soften our hearts uh, so that we may be not stubborn and resistant to what your word would tell us, but open, receptive, and seeking to prayerfully apply it in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. The old adage goes that the only two sure things in life are death and taxes. And while it's a little tongue-in-cheek, I think that that tongue-in-cheek adage is is popular for a reason. There's, There's something of a profound truth that it expresses. There is something inevitable about government. You are born under a civil authority. You currently live under a civil authority. You will always live under a civil authority, and you will end your days under the civil authorities. Now, why is that? If you ask the philosophers and the political theorists, you'll get a lot of different answers on why it seems that government is just this inevitable fact of human existence. If you asked maybe some of the Enlightenment philosophers, they would have told you, well, it's a social contract 
between two different parties agreeing to bestow authority and submit and and offer mutual uh, benefits and duties and things like that. If you ask the Marxists of the 18th and 19th century, they they would tell you that um, that that government is well, it's a result of competing factions and power groups and this constant power struggle and and on and on they go and and adapting the way that theory um, is practiced in the 20th century. If you ask maybe even some kings in the ancient world, they would have told you about the old theory of the divine right of kings and kings being directly appointed by God. Or even in the ancient Near East, Pharaoh was considered the direct incarnation of the gods and therefore directly governed all the people. And we could ask so many other people, and there's all kinds of answers on there, on why we have government. But the answer of the Bible is something a little different from all of these uh, political theories. There is an element of truth to all of them to one degree or another. But at the end of the day, the answer of Scripture is something different. The answer of Scripture of why there is government is simply this. God ordained it that way. God has created a world that functions through human government And it is because God has created the world in this way that the Apostle Paul now calls us to submit to the governing authorities just as God has created us to do. That is the thrust of the Apostle's argument in this passage, and I'd like us to look at it under three headings this evening. First is the root of government. Second is the role of government. And third, our response to government. And now I think it's important for us to say here at the outset that this sermon is not a time to explore all kinds of possible nuances and uh, different difficult situations and questions we may have about what is a truly complex topic of the Christian and the civil authority. The Apostle Paul, quite simply, is not concerned here with questions of, well, what do you do if the government asks you to sin? He would have an answer for that. He knows what the other apostles said in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. He's not concerned with all the other complex questions of, well, what do you do if it's not clear what the proper civil authority is at the current time? Or all these other little things that we could ask. That's not the aim of this sermon. That's not the aim of this text. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is going back to first principles and he is saying, how has God created the government to work and how do we as Christians in virtually every circumstance interact with the civil government? That is the question we're seeking to answer tonight. So first, this question of the root of government. What is the root of government? Where does it come from? Now this question is All important. You get this question wrong, you get the entire passage of Romans 13, 1 through 7 wrong. This is the basis of Paul's argumentation. So, for instance, there's a popular uh, version of interpreting this passage that generally gets used to try to work around the apostles' commands to submit to the civil authorities, and this interpretation 
uh, is based on a theory of how Paul and the time he is writing in and the government he's writing in. And the interpretation goes, well, the apostle is writing before Nero begins his intense persecutions of the church. And really at the time, the Roman authorities are relatively friendly to the Christian uh, church. And so that's why the apostle can have this really positive outlook on the civil authority. And that's why the apostle can call us to submit to and honor the civil authority. Now, the problem with that interpretation is it's just, for one, not how the apostle argues in this passage. He doesn't argue in a way that is specific to one particular government regime that's around and in power in his own day. He speaks very broadly. He speaks very generally, governments in general. He's not confining his argument to his own particular day and age. He's talking about all days and all ages, The other thing that that way of interpreting this passage tends to forget is that the Apostle Paul knows that governments can persecute the church. He's very well aware of that. The gospel that Paul preaches is based on a Roman trial before a Roman official of the only perfectly innocent man who ever lived who was then crucified on a Roman cross by Roman soldiers. The apostle is very well aware that governments can be wicked, and in fact that a government in part executed the most wicked act that has ever taken place in the history of mankind. So you can't say that the apostle is unaware of of unfriendly governments. That's not how he argues in this passage. So again, how does Paul argue in this passage? He argues from first principles. Going back to verse 1, he begins with this basic assumption. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Why is it that Paul can call us? to honor and submit to governing authorities, what is the basic logic that he's using? The basic logic is that God has created governing authorities, that they are, in fact, part of the created order. In theological language, we talk about three institutions of creation, the family, the church, and the state. All of these, even before the fall, were woven into the very fabric of creation, into the very way that God made this world to operate. So even in the Garden of Eden, before Adam had eaten the fruit of the forbidden tree, he in himself was in seed form a small kind of government. And that continues after the fall. Government is this natural outworking of the growth of mankind and populations increasing and different family groups having to grow and compete for space and try to find ways to relate to one another and find authority structures that work. Government is a creation institution. It's inevitable because it's part of the created order. And as so long as you live as a human being on this earth around other human beings, you will be part of some kind of authoritative governmental system. So when we ask the question, where do governments come from? The simple answer is they come from God. Governments come from God Almighty. And if we want to ask the question, how are Christians to relate to civil authorities? How do we uh, interact with them? 
the starting place has to be the understanding that God put them in their authority. That was not an accident. It was not just a result of power games. No, God put that government there. He has ordained it. He is behind it. There is no government, no civil authority, except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, this means that government is, in fact, a good thing. When God pronounced it is good over his created order after he had finished making the world, the world as he made it was a good place that included government. Which is why the Apostle Paul can have a very relatively positive attitude toward the civil authorities in this passage, in Romans 13. Why? Because he understood that this is part of God's good created order because he has put it there. If you struggle with having an honorable attitude toward your civil authorities, let me encourage you, remember where they came from. Remember who put them there. Remember who designed the world to work that way. It was your loving, good, heavenly Father. Now this ought to be a matter of great comfort for us as believers. It's very easy in our highly politicized world to really view government as the end-all, be-all. Everything rises or falls with the government. The thing that is most important about my personal welfare, about the welfare of our country and my neighbor and those around me, it all has to do with who's occupying the White House, who's sitting on the Supreme Court bench, who's legislating in Congress, who's running city council, who's in city hall. And not that these are unimportant things. These are important things. But the buck doesn't stop there. The buck doesn't stop in Washington. There is another who is behind all of it. And that someone is God Almighty. And he is the one who controls all of it. Proverbs 21, verse 1, says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wants. Part of the great comfort of this truth that God has ordained all human governments comes to us as well in our second point, which is the role of government. We've seen the root, but what is the role of government? Now, the great comfort that we find in here is the fact that God has given government a role. So it's not just a random accident of human interactions that civil authorities pop up all around us. It's not, again, just a mere accident of power games that's working until revolutions work us into a, into a Marxist utopia. It's not just because some people happen to get the upper hand on other people and decide to impose their authority and their will. No, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that it's not just an accident. No, God has put it there for a reason. He's given government a role. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul in this text calls the governors a servant of God. He even at one point calls the governing authorities, verse 6, ministers of God. 
He has a purpose in mind, and he is using them. And the Apostle Paul gives us that purpose in verses 3 and 4. It is a twofold purpose. Positively, the government is meant to promote good, but negatively, it also suppresses evil. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has ordained government to exercise terror over evildoers. The apostle says that the government is a terror to those who would do evil. That is that the governing authorities inspire terror in the hearts of those who would consider doing horrible, wicked things. They inspire terror in the hearts of those who have been subjected to their governmental wrath. Terror in the hearts of those who are undergoing punishment from the governing authorities. The basis of that terror is found again here in verse 4. Verse 4 says that God has given government a sword. The government does not bear the sword in vain. God has taken the sword, power, force, forceful authority, and he has placed that into the hand of the civil authorities to exercise their God-given right to punish evil, to restrain evil in this world. So when the government carries out punishments on wrongdoers, and yes, even at times lethal force, as the image of a sword evokes. It is not just a group of people imposing their will on a helpless minority. It is God's very wrath being exercised by servants of God on this world to preserve it from absolute chaos, absolute anarchy, and all the mass population and the general public being subject to the whims of horribly wicked, evil, depraved sinners. Back in chapter 1, verse 18 of the book of Romans, the apostle noted that even now the wrath of God is being revealed, is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And one of the ways that God Almighty reveals his wrath, brings his wrath to bear here and now on this day, prior to the great day of wrath and the day of the Lord and the day of judgment, part of the way that he does that is through his government authorities that he has established carrying out his wrath through the power of the sword. Now, earlier in this text, just a little bit back, in fact, verse 19 of chapter 12, Recall that the Apostle Paul notes this. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now, ultimately, the way that we do what the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 is talking about is we wait on God and we patiently wait for his wrath to be exercised on the day of judgment when all those who are evil and wicked and persecute his people are given perfect justice from a perfectly holy and good God. But even now, as we wait on the day of judgment, God in his mercy and his goodness, who knows that we are an impatient people, that we are not perfectly long-suffering like he is, even now, he shows us his wrath. He guarantees the full bringing of his terror on the wickedness of this world, even now in our lives. How does he do that? He does that through governing authorities, servants of God's wrath. This frees us up, people of God, to not feel the need for personal vengeance. In fact, to be able to repay evil with good, to heap burning coals on the heads of those who would do evil to us. Why? Because we don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner. Because God has ordained a judge, jury, and executioner. And he has done so here and now. And he asks us, to allow those channels that he has ordained to exercise his vengeance in his way in this day and age. Now that's part of the role of government. That's the negative side. But there's also a positive side to this. As we mentioned earlier, there's a sense in which the government also is a promoter of good. Look again at verse 4. The apostle writes, For he, the governing authority, is God's servant for your good. Now, a key question turns here on the interpretation of what Paul means when he says good. Usually, when the apostle talks about good, he is talking about the perfectly good God that we serve and the good works that we do out of transformed hearts that love God, that have been touched by the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And while that's not entirely different from what the apostle is talking about here. That's not exactly what he means by good when he says, verse 4, that the governor is God's servant for your good. Now remember again the way that Paul is talking about governing authorities in this passage. He's talking in very broad terms. He's talking very generally. This passage could apply to all governing authorities, even those who haven't been touched by the gospel. Furthermore, he's talking about, in the context, our relationship with the outside world, with those who don't necessarily have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about good here, he's talking about good insofar as the unbeliever can understand it. In in theology, we talk about general and special revelation. There is a special revelation, the word of God the particular revealed will of God through Jesus Christ, the precise moral requirements of God's holy moral law. But there is also a sense in which all mankind everywhere generally understands what is right, what is wrong, what is good, that God exists, some things of what God is like. If you need to read more on that, we can go back to uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, where God set, where the, Paul says that God's existence and certain attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have 
been made. So there is a general sense in which all people understand there is a good that is to be worked for among human society. I love reading missionary biographies. There's so many fascinating things you can learn from them. They're very inspiring. And one of the things that I love reading in missionary biographies, especially about uh, missionaries to unreached people groups, is how you see how even the most remote, isolated people who have absolutely no gospel still have a strong sense of right and wrong, and how that strong sense of right and wrong conforms to the law of God as we understand it as the people of God. I was recently reading a new biography on Elizabeth Elliot called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. Would highly recommend it. It's a very fascinating, inspiring, and encouraging story. And one of the things that this uh, biography does is it, of course, recounts in the first half of her life her ministry to the Waldani people of the Ecuadorian rainforests. Her husband, Jim Elliott, was famously, along with several missionary friends, martyred by these people. And then his late wife, or his uh, widow, Elizabeth, goes in and moves to these people, gives them the gospel. These people come to faith. They form a church. It's a beautiful story. But one of the fascinating things about this particular biography is it tells the story of what was going on in the Waudani people that provoked them to spear to death Jim Elliot and his missionary friends. And what had happened was that there were two people, a young man and a young woman, in the Waudani people who had spent the night in the jungle together, which was deeply, deeply offensive to their social norms and how they understood the way young men and young women who aren't married were supposed to interact with one another, which provoked a massive dispute among this this tribal people in Ecuador. And they were getting so angry at each other and beginning to grow into this furious, murderous rage that one of the men in the tribe who had met the missionaries decided that in order to keep peace in the tribe, he would try to redirect their rage to the missionaries they had just met. So he lied about his meeting with the missionaries and told them that the missionaries actually were trying to kill him, which was, of course, far from the truth, which then stirred the Waldani people up and their warriors into such a rage that they went out planning to seek and to kill these missionaries. Now, what's so fascinating about that story is the strong, unignorable sense of right and wrong that these people had. This was a people group that had absolutely no contact with the outside world. They had no gospel. They had no Bible. These missionaries had barely begun deciphering their language. And yet, these people had a strong sense of how Young men and young women are meant to interact. And the sacredness of marriage and the need to guard this special institution of a man and a woman united for life with children. They had a deeply, deeply sense of uh, being offended when they were told that someone tried to murder one of their own. And as twisted and as backwards at time as their sense of right and wrong was, they still had a sense of right and wrong like all people everywhere do. 
And that is what governing authorities understand. Even the most pagan, the most unreached peoples and governing authorities have a sense of what is good and what is bad for the people under their authority. And that's the kind of good that Paul is talking about here. It is the general good that is understood by all people. Now, as Christians... There's almost an added bonus to this. So as Christians, we understand what is truly good. We know what are good works that are truly pleasing to God. We know what God would have of us. And in the way, and there's a way in which the government inadvertently almost is a servant for our good, not just generally speaking, but also, also specially speaking. The government and allowing us as Christians To carry on our lives in a generally good and peaceful way also allows us to carry on our lives in a way that carries out good works. So think, if you will, for a moment of just this building that we're in. Why do we have this building? How did we get here? Well, we have this building really because our government has a general sense of what we find in the Eighth Commandment, which is a right to private property and the good of other people, and that it's wrong to steal, that there needs to be order to these things. And so the government, it guarantees that we can have our lights on, that we can have water running, that nobody can just come in and break and smash and destroy our building without any consequences. It is a general good that the government allows us. But in allowing that, they thereby allow us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to gather for worship, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. So yes, the government is there to invoke God's wrathful justice on the world, but it is also there for our good, our general good that we may lead peaceful and quiet and lives, but also that we may live godly lives. God puts the government there so that you may lead a godly life. So that's our second point. Lastly, consider this third point. Not just the root of government, not just the role, but our response. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Once again, Paul answers our question, how do we as Christians interact with government with a two-fold response? First, we are called to submit. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Why do we, as, how do we as Christians respond to the government that God has given us? The first thing we do is submit. We acknowledge the authority that God has put in place and, in fact, acknowledge that God is exercising his very own authority through those governing authorities. We submit to the government because God is working in the government and thereby submitting to the government is submitting to God. That's why the Apostle Paul in verse 5, he can argue, well, we want to avoid the wrath of the government, but we also submit for the sake of conscience. If you want to maintain a good conscience, you must submit to governing authorities. Why? Because failure to submit to the governing authorities is a failure to submit to God. Now, that's the first part of our response. The second part, though, and this may be the harder part of verse 7, is Paul calls for us 
to honor our governing authorities. Why do I say this may be the harder part? Well, I think it's very easy to sort of just go along with what the governing authorities say. It's very easy to just sort of begrudgingly take the government as sort of a necessary evil and necessary yoke, but that's not the way Paul views it here. He says, no, you're not just to submit, you're to honor. This isn't just Paul. This is the consistent emphasis throughout all of Scripture. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Timothy 2.2, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul, in Acts chapters 24 and 26, when he's put before the, the Roman governing officials, Felix and Agrippa, even just a cursory reading of his interactions with these governing officials shows you this is a man who respects those who are in civil authority over him. He speaks very honorably, very highly. Even Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, while he acknowledges that God is above Pilate, that God has ordained all things, that he himself is above all things, he still interacts with Pontius Pilate in a respectful way manner, in an honoring manner. It's not enough just to submit. We must also honor. So do you honor your governing authorities? I don't mean pretending that they're perfect. Honoring someone doesn't mean that you ignore all their faults, all their failings, and pretend like everything they do is perfectly good. But it does mean that you avoid things like slander, or the national pastime of open mockery of your governing officials, of speaking well of them, of speaking of them in a way that recognizes the high pressures that they are under and the high authority and the high calling that they have been given and how such little decisions that they can make can have such widespread effects. Do you pray for your governing authorities? The Apostle Paul explicitly commands that in 1 Timothy 2.2. Let me encourage you, if you feel in your heart that you have a hard time not just submitting but also honoring the governing authorities, this is a wonderful way that God loves to use to change the hearts of his people. When you pray for someone, it becomes very, very difficult to begin feeling bitterness and anger and hatred toward that someone. When you truly pray for them, do you pray for your governing officials? Because God has put them there, and he has put them there for your good. So yes, the only two sure things in life are, in fact, death and taxes. But this isn't a fact to begrudgingly endure. It's something to be thankful for. Because God is using his government to bring about his justice and his goodness in his world, even for his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would work in our hearts to do that thing which may seem so difficult so often, to submit to and, yes, even honor our governing authorities. Lord, we thank you for those you put in authority over us for our good. Lord, would you work in us by your Spirit to change our hearts like that of Christ's. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.